Welcome to episode 10 of the Block Podcast. It's uh, March 17. We both have slight colds, and we're coming to you from sunny, rainy, very much in the middle of an unpredictable month of March in Rabat. Uh, the podcast, as usual, talks about books from, uh, about, and with some connection to the Arab region. And um, with me is Marsha Linksquayli. Hello, Ursula. And I really am a little bit out of it today. I've had like a cold for the last two weeks, which I think uh, people may be able slightly to hear. And so I am, I am brain slow. Okay. Well, we'll talk... Just a warning. We'll start by talking about... Um, I wanted to talk about um, an interview that was... Uh, I was the subject of recently. And... That sounds so comfortable, even just the way you put it. <laughs> I am I'm always somewhat uncomfortable being the subject of the interview rather than the interviewer. I, I think about it a little bit like I'm... I'm a taxi driver who's very comfortable in this city that I've been a taxi driver in for the last however many years, decade. And, and now instead I'm in the back seat and somebody who's just come to the city for the first time is the taxi driver. And I'm, you know, having a little bit of anxiety. They're taking me totally the wrong way. And um, I don't like being interviewed either. <laughs> I know which side of that, intera- of that interaction I like to be on. Yes. Um, occasionally, an interview comes out really well. Uh, I, there was one that I did, and it came out, I think, on Asymptote. I, I can't remember. But uh, it, I was really pleased with it. But generally, this, this one was very difficult. It's, and it's difficult when the interviewer and interviewee are not necessarily instantly on the same page about things that... Uh, And of course, the interviewer, this interviewer did a good deal of background research, but uh, hit some, I guess, sour points or uh, difficult points for me. I think I really, one of the difficult questions for me was one, um, is literary translation playing a part in empowering Arab women to tell their own stories now, you know, as, as opposed to in the past, Arab women have been what uh, suffered denigration and denial of agency. And the word empowerment, I think, is a very difficult one. I was uh, then speaking with a friend of mine, a Lebanese friend of mine, who she and her partner both translate between French, Arabic, and English. And he had a UN text and had to translate empowerment of girls and women and apparently was ranting about how frustrating this was and how this term meant to Absolutely tra- nothing. To translate that term into Arabic? Into French, actually. Oh, into French. Mm-hmm. The empowerment yeah. of girls and women. What does it mean to grant power to people who uh, don't have it? Uh, and, and this... and But is it even... I feel like the connotation of it isn't even exactly to give people power. It's this weird sort of like to bring out the power that they have in themselves, right? It's it's a little bit... Because actually, that's a kind of straightforward thing. Like, if some people have power and some people don't, and you're saying, give some of that power to people who don't. Like, share the power. Right. B- but empower has this weird sort of, like, as if they just need sort of some encouragement. They just need to blossom into their own empowered selves. Right. And I I think 
it's a word that I only associate with the phrase girls and women. I would never think of empowering men, um, even from, you know, men from marginalized communities. I think empowerment to me automatically goes with girls and women. Also, just this idea that we are somehow virtuous for reading Arabic literature, that companies making money off of Arab women's novels is empowering those women in a way that they were not before. Perfectly so, empowered in the... So, sorry, so this was an interview that was just generally about the state of Arab literature and about you. It was kind of yes. a profile of you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... And so, yeah, so we can just, like, redo it. And you can get the <laughs> answers that you want. We can, right. you, can, you can basically, like, mug the driver of the car that, like... Get in the take, driver's seat. Get in the driver's seat and, like, re-ask yourself the questions. Yeah, well, <laughs> later I imagined the look on Huda Barakat's face, asking if she was empowered by being translated. Or, you know, Basma Abdelaziz, was she more empowered after being by being translated, translated that into was, English. That yes. was specifically like translation into English is what in, empowers? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought he meant um, just uh, have women been empowered to write more, tell more of their stories. Oh, okay. So English translation. Is that empowering women, Arab women? So what did you say? I said the question made me cringe. Okay. I, it was not very helpful answer, really. So if you, so is there a way? Is there any way that some form of that question wouldn't make you cringe? Like, is there something in that question that you think is worth talking about? Um, I, you know, uh, I think Elizabeth Jaquette uh, answered a version of this question uh, somewhere that she tries to translate works that are not misogynist, tries to translate works that she wants to see in the world, right? Sometimes uh, I think we give a pass, oh, Arabs, they're, they don't like women, so the fact that this narrative is, is misogynist, that's, that's just how they are. Um, but she was talking about consciously wanting to translate works that where women were real people. So, you know, I think that is a, st uh, a reasonable stance for a translator to take. Sure. Both male and female authors, though, can write uh, those she works. Was, she was talking about male and female authors. I think she translated a work that, um, that you could definitely say had char female characters that were not fully rendered and that she regretted that and that she wanted to, from then on, consci more consciously choose the works that she was bringing into new life in English. I mean, I think if anything, okay, so being translated into English as a female author from an Arab or Muslim country, you know, there, there's obviously perhaps the advantage of just recognition, including financial money, recognition. Right. So that is obviously, I think, a plus for authors. But other than that, I think like having your voice translated into English probably actually just introduces a lot of complications and weights to you. Like, it's probably actually not that empowering. It's probably more like you then have to deal with all the like enormous complexities of being a representative right. female Arab Muslim voice that is now available in translation and that people turn to you with questions like, 
about women's empowerment and so on. I don't think it's like and you liberating. Are, yes, you are I think expected it's a big to be, burden. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. Sonala Ibrahim, who is not a woman, recently gave an interview where he said, if it weren't for the money, he would never want to be translated into English. But money is good for buying your groceries and paying your rent. Well, I mean, I have very complicated feelings about Sonali Rahim, but I'm, I'm, and I know I've met him and spoken to him, but I'm happy he has been translated into English because I wouldn't have discovered him or, and French. I mean, I'm very happy he... Oh, it's lucky for us. Yeah. I think he was just saying, I think he was positioning it as it is not... He doesn't care. It's not his audience. It's, it's yeah. not what he... Yes, it's not his end goal. Yeah, same here. I do, I do think most writers write for... If oh. you're writing for translation, it is a, a sort of deformation of your, your project. I mean, it's a different project than it's writing. It's a different project. I don't think necessarily... I don't want to sort of, like, go on a full attack against writers whose imaginary audience from the beginning is international. Mm. You, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's... I, I don't think it necessarily works that often or that well, but it could. Right. I, I don't think people have, like, sort of obligation, national obligations as writers. No, no, yeah. no. But, yeah, you you take on all sorts of new obligations, particularly as an Arab woman, once when you're available in English. It's I mean, it is, frankly, amazing. You know that I sort of, like... To, um, have this kind of long-standing interest in like feminism and women's rights in the region and and I've I'm trying to write something about this now and every time I try to write about it I sort of for a western audience I find myself trying to sort of make a simple point but that I feel like actually does not go across easily which is that the whole question of like women and women's rights and Islam, the moment you're, you know, Islam, I mean, or the Arab world, which are often sort of conflated into the same Mm. thing. um, The moment you put those terms together, it's like you just enter this kind of force field of like knee jerk reactions and like stereotypes and cliches that as a writer is really hard to avoid as a reviewer, I think is really hard to avoid, like to just not sort of present people, present women from this part of the world as either, like, renegades or victims. Or right. There are, there are generally two paths that you're allowed to choose. The gravity is intense yeah, when you're walking Yeah, it's in like a area. force field. Mm-hmm. It really is a force field. And, and I feel like every time I've tried to write, I've kind of, like, n- I'm not fully succeeded at all. Like, I mostly think about sort of ways in which I've failed to, like, get it all across, sort mm-hmm. of the complexity. And... I always am thinking, but also because I'm writing for a Western audience on this top, on these, t- it's different. Like when you're writing for a Western audience, you're pushing against a particular force field. If you're writing for a domestic audience, you're pushing against a different one. Right. Yeah. And the, the, yeah, the Western audience has very intense ideas about Arab women and who they can be. Adam Talib did a funny talk uh, called Translating for Bigots at the AUC at some point. And he was saying that as a translator, he was frequently told, oh, this isn't realistic. Uh, This Arab woman, you know, smoking and drinking and chatting about whatever, Marxism, probably. I don't know. But uh, that that there's a lot of um, expectations about what female characters, what resonates from a female character. Yeah, I'm not surprised. 
Okay, so so another so you question. Had a question on empowering women, and then what else did you did they did uh, your interviewer ask you that was difficult to answer? Well, then uh, this and this these are I think my problems with these particular questions were not that they were the re, the interviewer did a lot of research I think, but these are the kinds of things that come up again and again in the presentation of Arabic literature in English translation. So the other another one was. Why do you think Arab novelists are increasingly interested in writing characters from marginalized communities? And then specifically mentioned were Jews, migrant workers, LGBTQ. And, uh, you know, of course, my instant answer was, well, Yusuf Idris was interested in writers from marginalized communities. And so was Taha Hussein. And uh, so was Nagib Mahfouz. And it's hard to, you know, it's, difficult for me to think of a writer who is not in some way interested in writers from marginalized communities, except maybe Jurji Zedin, but even him in his historical novels about, you know, great moments in Islamic history, he was interested in slave girls and other, you know, marginal characters. I mean, one doesn't come across a novel that's sort of written from the point of view of, like, official sort of central power or authority usually it is other voices right unless it's meant to flip uh flip in some way show the people around them or i i mean i guess what do you mean i i guess even stories that were i mean i'm just rereading mafuz's midak alley so like pretty much everyone in that alley is a they're certainly socioeconomically mostly marginalized um there there is actually a very central gay character right um and uh some very strong female characters all of some of which engage in professions that are then like very much marginal i mean there's and there's a man who makes there's a man there's a man whose profession is to like make beggars like right, I remember that. Person that was lovely. Beggars. That was maybe my favorite part of Madonna. He's a, yeah, it's a, he's a he's a he's a he's a funny, very dark character. But um, yeah, I guess of course that you can always find some like you can't cover all marginalized voices or identities. So there would always be some. But it sort of seems like the definition of marginalized in this question is very much the current one so like the, yes and the ones that, identity that resonate particularly in the west i think if you look at the kinds of arabic literature events that pan america hosts or that shebek festival hosts they are um they're often around you know uh, lgbtq2 lgbtq writers um writers who write about the kinds of marginalized communities that resonate in particular in in the west and so that we get we do get a particular picture of what arabic literature is doing and and also um these are more identity oriented marginalized communities rather than class oriented marginalized communities that i think arabic literature has been that nagib mafud and yusuf idris and uh, taha hussein were interested in yeah and if you talk about like I could think of books about uh, sort of Bedouin communities or people of Bedouin. Mm. I mean, books that feature like rural settings. <laughs> That's almost by definition. Right. In like modern, uh, certainly Egyptian history, uh, a form of marginalization. And and then recently, there, I mean, we talked about a novel 
that has a this whole main character and story is about a young gay man uh, in the in the spider's room. We right. talked about that on 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 the show, and there's been novels about like uh, lesbian women in Saudi Arabia. Um, is that one called just called the others? The others by Sibyl House. Yes. I mean, but I think it's it's. It's a question whose premise is, again, sort of like that Arabic literature is catching up, right? Right, right. Oh, and then portrayals of J- Jewish communities. I mean, like, I feel like there's actually been a, a quite an interest on the part of artists and writers in, like, the the history of the Jewish populations in a lot of Arab countries who have, for the most part, left in the last 60 years. Right. I mean, it's hard to write about It'd be hard. It's sometimes hard. Is an Arab writer going to do necessarily a good job, like writing from the point of view of a Jewish character? It can be done, and I think people have written stories about it. And then, of course, writers who are from those communities themselves have written many memoirs and books. Right. Yeah. There. There was a trilogy um, by Kamel Rahayim, uh by an Egyptian author, where that where it was a the protagonist was half Muslim, half Jewish, and he was raised by his Jewish family and his fa- his Muslim father died. And I thought two of the books in the trilogy were quite well done, and then it kind of collapsed in the in the third. But There was a movie when I first started coming to Morocco, so about 10 years ago, there was like a feature film that was about a kind of teenage love story between a Jewish boy and a Muslim girl, and mm-hmm. it was... He, he did, the Jewish population in Morocco is very small now, but he, he was a member of this like small Jewish elite in Casablanca, and it caused a bit of a furor. I mean, mostly on the part of like Islamists waging the usual culture wars, uh. but it was projected in the theater here. It's called Maroc, mm-hmm. spelled R-O-C-K at the end. Um, I don't know. I don't think that that's... Certainly, it's not an invisible... None of those... None of those voices are unheard. Right. Yeah, it it smacks when there are um, events around these communities and portrayals of these communities in the West. It does smack to me a little bit of head padding, like you are finally... Like a um, whole literary event just about the portrayal of a particular... About, uh, that there are often literary events that are specifically about, you know, Arab queer writers, which is... It's fine, but it sometimes feels like this is the main way in which we're talking about Arabic literature and Arab literature. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, if there are like there are Arab women writers who decline to attend events and go and be included in anthologies that are specifically branded as like women Arab writers, like if I was a queer writer, I don't think I would necessarily want that to be like constantly foregrounded it, yeah, in, no, I, I in think discussions of my work. Hoda Barakat once uh, smacked me down when I asked her to contribute to it. Arab women writers recommend other Arab women writers. And I don't remember what she said, but I felt chastened. Mm. And of course, Hoda Barakat's writing is amazing on its own terms uh, without pigeonholing her as a lady. I mean, I'm sure people are happy for exposure, but... I hadn't realized that this was a thing, such a narrow focus. It, it, it seems to be a thing. Okay. And then the other thing, that, which is the third thing that I wanted to talk about, was, so this, this is the other question that I 
had difficulty answering and you know so now I'm gonna try again some genres fantasy sci-fi okay so fantasy we'll just say that's not true crime others are traditionally underrepresented in Arabic literature is that accurate and why and I think I answered something kind of rude and snarky like well I I hear that wine poems and insult poems and zajel are underrepresented in English literature why um, <laughs> um which is really oh. unhelpful <laughs> but it was the best I could come up with in the moment oh your poor interviewer <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that well good don't interview me in the future people <laughs> warning <laughs> Also, like, it's really hard to quantify some of these questions. Like, you know, you're sort of speaking very impressionistically and anecdotally. Like, it's not like we're counting how many novels are written showing certain voices. It's not like we have a survey mm. of topics and authors. It's not like we have a breakdown of what books fit into which genres. So I also find it hard with these questions because they sort of assume a very... Like, you can really scientifically say these things. And I think, you know, without actual data, which I find, I would find it kind of boring to collect, but there I'm sure are people <laughs> who, who wouldn't at all l to look at the literary field that way. Mm. Uh, but without that, you're kind of also just, you know, making kind of, sometimes kind of flimsy generalizations. Right. Well, I think there have been just like um, there have been a lot of Arabic sci-fi events recently and a lot of interest in pushing Arabic sci-fi and Arabic genre writing in general. I think some of the interest in Arabic sci-fi is kind of a I, I'm going to I'm going to sound like an ass. But while those backwards Arabs writing science fiction, there's a little bit of frisson there. Mm. Um, and, and some of the things that get called uh Arabic sci-fi, like the the article you sent me said, what, what was the title of it? Um, something about Saudi discovers science fiction, but then it was all about fantasy writing. And Saudi has known about fantasy writing for many hundreds of years. Yeah, I don't know if like the French, because the article's in French, I don't know if they use those terms maybe slightly differently uh. than we do. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Yes, because it's not about, it's, it didn't sound like a science fiction story. It's a story about a sort of magical parallel reality inhabited by like sorcerers and jinns right? right where there's like great battles are taking place between like rival clans of like witches which sounds interesting i mean at least the article was interesting to read yeah I th in the other one they mentioned which is hojan by uh yasser bajet and uh, ibrahim abbas it was very popular i i know somebody who read it in in translation which I think the two authors themselves did, and, you know, found it very twilighty. I, I think many of these pop novels, the sorts of genre writing that are popular in, mm -hmm. in Arabic, like horror novels in, in Egypt, sarcastic writing in, in Egypt, would not translate well. Um, but, but they're exciting it... in the local context for local reasons. But also, don't you think, it seems to me there's a... Okay, so there is partly like local authors responding to global trends right mm -hmm. so so basically writing the like i don't know arab hunger games or twilight or whatever like you right. you see there's like global you know trends of what's like successful and right although i think the arabic jinn novel is responding to very 
local trends. Yes, Harry, I, yes, fantasy and Harry Potter are very popular. Twilight was very popular. Uh, but I think these, you know, writing about a, a jinn human love story is very Saudi. Don't you think the jinns will be like vampires have been for the West? Yes. You know how yeah. everybody's written like a vampire, there's been like a gazillion vampire love stories? Yes. It'll just be... Yes. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the forbidden love. With this like distant, all-powerful, like kind of scary, sexy, right. other creature. Right. Although, you know, uh, <laughs> apparently this, this one, Haojun, was a bit chaste, so... Well, yeah, we, that's that's yet to come, right? Like the the the, the really the corset sexy. ripping mm -hmm. stuff hasn't. Although right. uh, some Saudi women's sexy novels are pretty sexy. Mm. Okay, but so okay, so clearly there is sci-fi. There, uh, there is. What, what were the other genres? It was that really were up? Uh, well fantasy. I think there's a lot more fantasy, and I think that um, sometimes when these Western projects are are put together. So there was this uh, sci-fi collection called Iraq Plus One Hundred that I think was that was edited by Hassan Balazim that I think was more or less successful. But I think it was very difficult. I, I had a friend who wrote a piece for that, and she'd never written science fiction before, and I don't think ever intends to again. So it was a little bit like write this piece because this is what our audience wants to hear rather than write this piece because this this is this is what you want to write this is what makes sense in the in the context in the community yeah it's a weird i mean it sort of feels like basically these are like genres are successful on the market i mean detective novels certainly and 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 sci-fi and also, and so there's just the idea that well it would be arabic fiction that fell into these genres would be commercially successful. I think there is a belief in some ways that there's something missing because Arabs are not writing science fiction because they're not interested in science. Um, so there should be more Arabic science fiction. It's, I, I it's, also, it's just such a like, so these are all the categories that like Western literature has developed and, and, and all other literatures from other parts of the world are underdeveloped if they don't have these branches. Right. It's weird because they might come up with their own genres that would not map on exactly to like existing ones. Right. You know, I think the Emirati young woman shopping novel is a thing that I don't need to see in English and I don't feel backwards for us not having it and they're welcome to it. But this word underrepresented, like these genres are underrepresented as if there's a sort of like standard level of representation for these genres within a sort of like, you know, healthy, healthy well-developed literary, literary field. Mm -hmm. And therefore, again, it's like the, the body is diseased if if or just have. under, oh, it's, right. like, it's a kind of under, under something, underdeveloped, underrepresented, like, you know, these voices are missing, these genres are still kind of like in the works. I, I think it's really weird to ask authors to write in a, in a genre that they didn't gravitate towards themselves and they had no like pre-existing interest in. Like, I would imagine, because so much of writing is like, reading first like I would imagine that people who write 
sci-fi or noirs are first of all like fans of sci-fi exactly. and noir and, and that they read it a lot and that they love it and that and that it speaks to them and that that's why they choose mm-hmm. to do it so to sort of like artificially be like I will now commission you who've never done this before to write a sci-fi short story or right and then uh, another collection that I read recently was Berdet Noir which is coming out later this year and it had the same issues there were some great stories in there. There was only one, maybe two, that I felt were really noir. And Samuel Shimon bemoaned in his introduction, we're just not used to us, us Arabs, commissioning stories from particular genres. And some of these are really big-name authors who are who are Ahmed Zadawi, Mahsan al-Ramli, Sinan Antoun, who are participating in this noir collection, but um, I don't think that you would go up to Jonathan Franzen and say, right, okay, here are, you know, the, here are 15, 20 really big name English language authors who write totally different genres. Let's have them all write noir stories. Well, and he says in the introduction that he translated one, they translated a, a noir story from English into Arabic as a kind of model mm. from a previous collection and then circulated it to all the authors I mean, it would be as if you went up to Jonathan Franzen and other authors and gave them, I don't know, a sort of like... One Nabeti poem. A prose poem, <laughs> you know, uh, and, 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 and then said like, okay, uh, now all of you, we're going to do an anthology of... Ghazal's. On this kind Good of luck. model. Yeah. I, it, it is, and it is, a, it is a little strange of an introduction. It's very short, but it does sort of, it, it mostly expresses frustration with the whole project. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I hope people mostly skip it uh, because it does make you think, well, this is not going to be good. Uh, if if he's telling us that he pretty much, you know, it was impossible and that Arab writers will not behave and write noir stories like we told them to. Uh, I mean, and uh, the one that felt the most wonderful, wonderfully noiry was written by an Iranian author because the authors didn't necessarily have to be Iraqi, but it just had to be set in Baghdad. And he, but he, I looked him up then, and he's written, of course, other noir, and he edited another noir collection for them. And, and so he, he's lived in the genre. Hmm. So, but, um, just out of curiosity, like, I want to hear, I want to hear, because I'm thinking about this now to myself, like, sort of what your definition of noir is, or sort of like, what, the ones that didn't feel like really noir why that was the case okay so well some of the stories just felt like social realism and i wasn't even sure why did they all involve a crime no they all involved some kind of crime happening somewhere Uh, some of them just felt more thrillery and that was fine there was one i really liked um by uh muhammad alwin jabber room 22 and it uh, it felt thrillery. It felt like um, uh, there's a book called uh, Abduction by an Algerian writer that I really liked. It, you know, it was it was about an abduction, and we were following a child's abduction, and we were following up what happened. I, I guess there's something to me noiry about the atmosphere of the writing. Um, there needs to be something uh, about the setting, about the contrasting wealth and poverty, uh, something dark about it. I think there's an, a French-Algerian writer, Jeremy Guez, who writes noir that I really like. Um, but I'm sure he sort of lives inside, breathes, eats, drinks noir, 
And that's yeah. where he that's where his novels come from. I think about films actually more than more than novels of more than writing when I think of that word. And I, and it does. I sort of think about about like atmosphere and sort of like the kinds of dialogue and then just like accessories, like scenes sort of. Yes, no, I read Roger Ebert's What It What Must Happen for It to Really Be a Noir uh Rundown and what what and you know there had to be fedoras and there had to be a sassy woman in there somewhere. Oh, I think it can be modern. I think people <laughs> have done like some good like high school noirs recent. Like I, I can think of one. Um, I think you can update the setting, but something about the it has to be kind of jaded. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, there needs to be something slightly nihilist about it. Um, and, and and the texture of of the setting to me really matters in whether something is noir or not. I mean, I think there's a huge um, potential. I mean, I think there is a kind of yeah potential and sort of natural fit between a lot of like um, Arab cities and the noir or crime or detective genre. I thought, um, uh, you know, uh, Dunya Maharin Ganzir and Ahmed Nadi's graphic novel, The Apartment at Babalouk. Yeah. I felt that was noir. Yeah, it has that vibe. Yeah. I mean, there was a very, you know, the Nile Hilton affair, that film that was made by an Egyptian who grew up in Sweden mm-hmm. and came back to Cairo and then was managed to film part of his film in Cairo before getting kicked out and filmed the rest in Casablanca. That was a very successful, I I thought, uh, noir movie, and it has this sort of both cynical and romantic cop. Right, yes. Cynical and romantic is probably how I would describe noir. Both at once. Um, And, but I, so I think, like, I, I feel like... You come across stories often where you're like, this would make a great mm. detective story. You have, like you said, the sort of highs and lows. You have within like a city like Cairo or Casablanca, um, you, 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 you can move between these like very elite, luxurious spaces and uh, very like rough uh, neighborhoods the way like... The way Marlowe moves in Raymond Chandler novels between like Malibu and you know flop houses and right. I don't know what avenue and LA like you need that kind of big dramatic urban space where there's like swings between so that this lone guy can kind of map out a whole social universe that then there are connections unsuspected connections and you have like great potential for like depictions of like corrupt police. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know... Yeah, no, Room 22 definitely had corrupt... I thought room, among the, uh, the stories written by Iraqi authors and translated into English, Room 22, which also had corrupt police, what I thought had the most potential as, as noir. Because you can... I mean, like in that movie about Cairo, like you actually understand, you learn about how the society works by seeing how a corrupt cop operates. Mm. Like it actually is illuminating of something. Yeah, about- no, I think it has a tremendous potential for social critique as a as a genre yeah yeah 
And it has, I mean, like, I mean, in Egypt it's been going on for a while, right? There was that, right? There was, there was a novel, Vertigo was a hit, like, almost... Oh, Vertigo, Ahmed Murad's novel. Almost 10 years ago. I love that novel. Yes. And it starts out with an assassination, and it was sort of like a, it was, there were a lot of references to the Mubarak regime. Right. Right, like... Megdia Shafi's Metro is also quite nori. Yeah. I think in Cairo you could definitely find... The thing is, is that I think you you would just have to hold back from saying, well, I'm going to get Gamal al Ritani and uh, whatever, you know, yeah. these important... Basma Abdelaziz and... Right. No, the way to do it would be to go and look for people who are already writing that kind of... Right. Those kinds of stories and select them on that basis, not select them on the basis of who's a famous writer and then ask them to, to fit in... To that, to that genre. I know. I mean, Egypt goes like, re- like you, like Nagi Mahfouz's *The Thief and the Dogs*, is right? Like which very Ahmed Morad, I think, has who, who wrote *Vertigo*, I think, has named as an influence on on him and his writing. Right. Yeah. And and um, and then and in Morocco too, I think there's. I mean, so I know, like for example, in Moroccan cinema, it's uh, developed like three or four years ago, maybe even longer, time always passes faster than I think, there was this hit movie uh, called Casa Negra, so a play on Casablanca, right. and it was this like very um, dramatic uh, sort of underbelly of Casablanca's story featuring a cop, and it was sort of a big hit. I think there's been a number of those kinds of stories? Well, I'm excited for Marquette Cache Noir, which I just got a note from the publisher this morning saying it's not it's not ready yet, and so they, they'll be getting it to me when they get it to me, I guess. But that's uh, edited by Yassine Adnan, and I hope that he looked for people who are sort of immersed in this genre. So that's part of this noir series. It's like another entry in it? Yes. They've got, I don't know, more than 100 at this point. And the AUC Press is publishing a whole series of like Moroccan Hum- detective yes. novels. They contracted five, they did wrote a five novel contract with wow. Hamdouchi to do detective novels. Yeah, I think they, they have a sense that detective novels in translation are um, can be very commercially successful. And I think it has possibility. I think he needs to, I think it would be best if he developed one character around, you know, um, like the Inspector Loeb novels by Yasmina Khadra and, and really worked on, on that, but I, I guess I'm not in charge of it. They all feature different characters, <laughs> they, different So stories. far, it seems like. Oh, uh, because I just started one, and it was, it, it also features a uh, corrupt policeman, but whose corruption is so sort of like part of the way things work that it's not even... I mean, the way I think it's also narrated more or less from his point of view, and there's just there's like no moral qualms whatsoever. Like it would just be strange and bizarre and almost unworkable for him not to be corrupt. Like it is so presented as part of his job, which I found interesting. I, the thing that I found a little bit hard is that there sometimes between the point of view of the of the policeman, which is like misogynist and. Uh, sort of very unself-questioning, and the point of view of the author, I couldn't see enough distance. Mm. So I couldn't tell if there was a sort of critical distance from the from the point of view of the policeman or not, mm. who does and says, like, very off-putting things. 
Right. From the beginning. Right. And is, yeah, like, definitely an anti-hero, I think. Yeah, I read his White Fly, and I I enjoyed it. So I, you know, I, I hope that he finds his feet as a detective writer. I mean, there's tons of, I, I think you can tell so many stories about about any place, really. But, I mean, I think most most of us enjoy, like, a really good detective novel. I right. Mean, and, it, and it's something that crosses easily in translation. I think people have discovered Swedish and Norwegian right. detective novels. Right. Yes, there's a kind of international you know, vacuuming up of that, of, of entries from that genre from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly there's a familiarity with it in Arabic that some of the first things that were translated from among novels from from English and French into Arabic were these kind of detective novels. That's true, that's true. When you when you talk to Arab authors and they remember what they read as like teenagers mm-hmm. and stuff, all the way back to Mahfouz, I think, mm-hmm. is like you know Sherlock Holmes and mm-hmm. and sort of um, Maurice Leblanc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Arsène Lupin novels. Uh, well, cool. I look forward to reading more, m- more, more of these. I look forward to the Marrakesh entry. What else did we want to talk about? I'm sure there was something else. We were going to talk about Saudi fantasy, but we kind of already talked about Saudi fantasy. We were going to talk about Saudi fantasy. We were going to talk about. I am a little bit constantly annoyed at the moment with the with all coverage of the like travels of the Saudi crown prince. Right. I think I think when when you mentioned em- empowering women earlier, I was sort of thinking of the posters that went up in London and online and on your blog too. No, not on not on my blog, but on <laughs> on the Facebook page, which oh. it does have you know tens more than ten thousand subscribers. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. But there's these ads that say that just have a picture of a kind of you know you know gutsy looking Saudi women at the wheel of a car, kind of like staring back, and then it and then the tagline is he is empowering Saudi Arabian women. Right. Which is so annoying. Not least of which, because it is, of course, Saudi women who have demanded that these barriers be removed. Uh, these misogynist barriers. Nobody is empowering anybody. He's, you're just giving them their rights, like, too few and too late. And, you know, and the whole world is, I mean, or at least a significant contingent of it is sort of like applauding this. Right. Um, I mean, partly that's, you know, paid and bought for think tanks and PR agencies they and have donated Western politicians. They have a great amount of money to, the, to this effort of making him appear as a young reformer who's progressive in whatever way. Yeah, and it's work. I mean, and it's as a brand exercise, it's it's kind of working. And don't get me wrong; like, I'm thrilled that Saudi women will be able to drive and sure. that they'll be able to open their own business. Like, I'm happy for every little hurdle that's removed. And I don't think just because it is used for PR that it's like inconsequential. I think it's yeah does. no I, I think I was also asked in this interview. Um, well, aren't these uh, some of these book fairs for or and book events in the UAE uh, used as soft power. So then, and aren't they used as whitewashing for et cetera, et cetera? That well, if the book affair is if the book fair not book affair if the book fair is a good thing in and of itself, then it's a good thing in and of itself. You know, 
even if the motivating factor was to make somebody look better. I mean, a lot of these things come down to like, can we hold two complex thoughts at once and say them? Like we, you know, support, like having book fairs is a good thing, but like, oh, these, you know, for example, in this country, there's a huge problem with freedom of expression. Mm. If you can sort of articulate them both at once, including maybe at the book fair itself, that's kind of the ultimate challenge. Um, and usually you know, that's also possible. Yeah, and worth doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, take the opportunity of the book fair to talk about these mm-hmm. things, maybe. And the same thing, like, it is, uh, it is, it is great uh, for Saudi women to gain new legal rights, and yet the person giving, to them, giving them to them is a male autocrat uh, who acts with complete impunity, and, you know, is bombing women and children in Yemen uh, as and, a sort of signature right. foreign policy move. And not really particularly concerned with the rights of migrant women, uh, and non, non-Saudi women living in Saudi Arabia, or even women of lower classes living in Saudi Arabia. Or let's, or any Saudi woman who might actually be a dissident and say something that right. would be politically challenging. Like, you can be sure he's not going to empower her. Right. So, but maybe you have a conversation about Saudi women's rights that doesn't just say like, oh, this is all a farce, you know, he's, 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 he's a tyrant and therefore, you know, they're not getting any right. No, they are. Something's actually changing. Right. Um, something significant that people can take strategic advantage of may be happening. Right. And at the same time, uh... Like, please have a dose of skepticism about these announcements and these <laughs> and these branding exercises. Right. Yeah, at the moment I'm editing a translation of a Saudi woman's novel that takes place in large part inside Saudi prisons and in large part is about different migrant women and the and, and as well as Saudi women from all sorts of different backgrounds and what they undergo in in prison. How does it? Why? How? How does the story um, get situated in prison? Like, what is the framing for that? The uh, the narrator herself is was in prison, and she sort of um, blocked it out of her memory in some way. And so this is the process of her trying to recall these stories. I, I mean, we're working on it a little bit. There are amazing anecdotes, though, from women and their lives in prison. And so that that's one of the things that I would like to say is that in this process of criticizing, let's make sure that we're actually listening to Saudi women and women who live in Saudi Arabia and women who have lived in Saudi Arabia, rather than just sort of making pronouncements about, oh, uh, it's all bad and let's wait for the revolution and let's not care about Saudi women's rights at all, or wow, he's such a fantastic reformer, you know, rather than, you know, just sort of making those pronouncements ourselves. He, he, from... He's a revolutionary <laughs> himself. He's bringing, right. he's bringing the, 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 Arab, the, the real Arab Spring to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so I heard from Thomas Friedman. Directly? No. <laughs> I thought you meant he emailed you about something. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know the man. Sorry. Or any more than anyone else who reads the New York Times. Oh. Yeah, no, of course. Like, I think, you know, I think the reason, actually, if you have to have a reason, I mean, to translate uh, 
Saudi women and other women is not for their benefit. It's for ours. Mm. Like, and, and one, because it should be good to begin with. Like, it should be a good book, you know? I mean, if, if, if you're doing it sort of, if, if you want to, like, get an update on the human rights situation, like, there are other sources right. for that. Or, you, you know... You can go to humanrightswatch.org. Right, right. Or you can read history books or political science books. Mm. One, because it's a, it's, a, it's a real piece of good writing. And, and two, for, but for us to, to learn something new, but not in a didactic way, to learn something new in, like, a human way. Right, right. right. To see our, ourselves in a new way and our, our world in a new way and, yeah... It, it it actually, it empowers us. Like, we get knowledge from it. Yes, yeah. I don't know that the authors get that much from it, other than, like, hopefully more of a livelihood. Right. I'm, this particular author, I think, is a bit nervous about what having this novel in translation might mean mm. uh, for her personal safety. So Yeah, it can attract you a lot of, a lot of attention. But in the new uh, revolutionary reformist reign, of, I'm sure th- I'm sure that women's memoirs about their prison experiences will be welcome. You know, mm, um, okay. Uh, you know, because there's no issues with freedom of expression or like the judicial system or or so on and so forth. No, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like I. I I try to avoid sort of like really facile Saudi bashing because mm. they're is so much of that. Right. But and they, uh, there is, a, I think, this, this article that I read about f- Saudi fantasy writing, they were also saying, oh, this is a, a new realm for freedom. Actually, there's a, a deep and wonderful Saudi literary culture from hundreds of years. And, and, and Saudi is a huge, diverse country. It's not just this tiny elite of rich people. Uh, so, you know, so I think sometimes when we talk about Saudi Arabia, we're, you know, talking about some sort of imaginary Saudi Arabia. Well, we're talking about a place where most of us haven't spent any significant amount of time. Like, I've been there once. Right, right. You know, um, so we're talking about a place that we don't know very well, let's be honest. Right, that um, only just opened up tourist visas as a thing, Right. There certainly weren't until, if there are now, there were not until recently. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they're like, I would imagine they're restricted maybe to going to certain parts of the country. Mm-hmm. I'd be very surprised if you can just freely travel all around. But I don't, I don't know. That'll be interesting to see how that, how that works. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing with the, it was interesting to read that article about the fantasy novels in Saudi Arabia, but it was presented, again, as like, Access to this new form, mm. which is presented as something new and therefore sort of not indigenous, like something that they got from the outside world, gives them this degree of freedom. Where, like you say, there's been a, just a lively, you know, literary production, poetry production, like other forms of, I think, you know, the poetry competitions and so on, mm-hmm. right, are like huge in Saudi Arabia. Arabic the literature came ones. from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, because that's where the Arabic language. Yeah, it's came not, from. it's not, it's not a cultural wasteland. I mean, I don't, I don't know Saudi literature very well, um, but, but, but I'm, you know, it's this sort of tabula rasa kind of presentation right. sometimes. Which is also sort of the way journalism works, because you always have to claim that something is is new, right? 
yeah, no, if you said, here's some information about Saudi fantasy novels, which have been a thing for some time. It, right. It's not really a great hook. Although I thought it was an interesting article, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Yes. Like, I, I, I thought it was a sort of, you know, neat description of, of how the stories work and how they've been received and how this is, like, a very, you know, popular form of writing. And Oh, absolutely. I thought it was very informative without these particular things that I would edit out in my ideal world. Well, and the and the... So the book that you're working on, you're just helping her sort of like shape and edit her story, the Saudi jail, women yes. in jail story. Yes. Yeah. And what kind of crimes are the women in prison for? Um, a lot of them are in prison for having some kind of relationship out of wedlock. Okay. Uh, some of them are in prison for things that their husbands did, but somehow managed to some sort of corrupt thing that the husband did, managed to put her name on it and s- split town. Some of the women are, are in prison for uh, driving offenses, for moving around without their male guardian offenses. For driving, like, just for driving themselves? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, for crossing borders without a male guardian's permission. Okay. Uh, for For being a migrant laborer who tried to have... A romantic relationship of any kind. I mean, that sounds like in- an interesting book. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I think what's great about it is not that it necessarily tells us about Saudi Arabia, but some of the anecdotes are are funny. Uh, the The person, the narrator of it, is very skeptical. Um, some of the women are so presented as so naive, like they still believe that this man only loved them, and she was the first person that he threw his phone number at and that their, their love story is some sort of wonderful... Ro- when he got out of prison right away, and there she is, still in jail, mm. that he's, he's definitely going to marry her. Oh, that sounds kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, some of it is quite uh, depressing, but the narrator is enough slightly cynical. Uh, not cynical, but, you know, slightly knowing that... That I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I really like some of these anecdotes, and I hope we can put it together in a format that will be a great reading experience. Yeah, cool. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, sort of want to end on, on, on this note, which is just <laughs> let's relay as many voices from women in this part of the world as we can, as diverse as we can, Mm. you know, like they don't have to, without fitting into any format and like, you know, pay attention to them and not to like male rulers getting like standing ovations in Western capitals. (laughs) Right. Although I feel that there is some terrible gross affinity between the Trump America and Saudi Arabia, you know, the sort of Saudi monarchy. Well, hence the standing ovations. Yeah. Like, you, you know, I'm, I'm equally pissed at, like, Western predominantly also male leaders and pundits and whatever who are celebrating um, the... Suddenly have discovered that they want to celebrate what's being done for women's rights in these countries when, like, their overall interest in women's rights is generally non-existent, including mm. in, like all forms of Western complicity in curtailing those rights through, like, wars and, you know, economic exploitation and all the ways in which, 
you know, political disenfranchisement, like all the ways in which women don't get their rights. Right, immigrant women. But these guys have like lots of things to say about Saudi women getting to drive, you know, that's... Right. Again, revolutionary. Like if you use the revolutionary for this, like what, what, what words are you going to reach for when, when something really revolutionary does happen? Right, when the patriarchy falls. <laughs> All right. Well, it was great talking to you as usual. It was lovely talking to you, too. And we'll be back on the air in a couple of weeks. Yes. All right. See you then. Bye, everybody. Bye.